Over the last several weeks in a series entitled The Making of a Disciple, we've been identifying various tools that God uses to fashion us into the disciples that he wants us to be. First and foremost, God always uses faith. For a disciple is one who has explicit faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God uses the Bible. For a disciple is one who encounters the living God through his living word. God also uses evangelism to help fashion us into the disciples that he wants us to be. For the best way to stoke the fire is to share the story. Last time we discovered that God uses prayer. For prayer is one of those holy habits that God uses to help set the guardrails in our lives. This morning I want us to focus on the topic of ministry. For I'm convinced that God uses ministry to shape us, make us, fashion us into the disciples that he wants us to be. I use the idea of ministry not in its vocational sense, but rather in its biblical sense that every believer is a minister of the gospel. So this morning, I want us to focus our thoughts around how does God use what we do in ministry to make us into disciples. I want to use the Old Testament character, the man named Samuel. I want to draw from his life three takeaways of how God makes us into disciples. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Samuel chapter 3, allow me to begin at verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call, go back, lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if God, if the Lord calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak. For your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli... The guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. 
Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. He let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, and our prayer is simple. Speak, Lord, because your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The three takeaways or three lessons that you and I can learn from Samuel have something to do with surrender and holiness and identity. The first takeaway has something to do with surrender. For ministry requires surrendering our desires unto the Lord. Ministry requires surrendering our desire unto the Lord. In order for you and I to understand Samuel, we got to know a thing or two about his mom and dad. His father's name was Elkanah. I'm quite confident that his friends just called him Elk. Elk was a religious man, very faithful, loved the Lord, went to church all the time. Elk was married to two women. That doesn't sound very odd to us, for we know men who have multiple wives. The difference is that in those days, he had multiple wives simultaneously. The Bible says that he was devoted to one of his wives. Her name was Hannah. There was a problem in their marriage, though. They could not have any children. Apparently, this is a pretty common problem, especially in the Bible, There are numerous times where individuals are described and they're described in this barren condition. The same thing happened to Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel. The same thing was going on with Elk and Hannah. They tried, but they could not conceive. Now, the the rival wife, her name was Peninnah. I'm quite confident her friends just called her Penny. Penny, she had babies all over the place. I mean, she could have a baby at the drop of a hat. This was something that she constantly threw in the face of Hannah. In fact, the Bible says that this went on year after year. Not just month after month, but year after year. I suspect that every month when Hannah's hopes were elevated, they would quickly dash into despair. And Penny was right there to remind her, why are you upset? Don't you have any children? Oh, yeah. You don't have any children, do you? This went on year after year. You can imagine the frustration of this wannabe mom. You can fathom the numerous sleepless nights or the evenings that Hannah just cried herself to sleep. 
If you have ever struggled in the areas of fertility, you can relate to Hannah, can't you? You understand the frustration. You understand the fatigue. You, you understand just the, the devastation of, of the one thing that you want more than anything else is to be a mom. And it seems that one thing constantly eludes you. You understand how frustrating it must have been. We're even told that things got so rough that Penny threw it up in the face of Hannah so constantly that Hannah just wept repeatedly. In fact, she wouldn't even eat. Now, Elk, Mr. Sensitivity, he would walk up to her and he would look at her and and, and he would say, and I quote, what's wrong with you? Aren't you going to eat? Get you something to eat. Aren't I worth more than 10 sons to you? Listen, Elk had two wives, but he had no clue about women. The Bible does say that Hannah was a woman of prayer. Repeatedly, she prayed to the Lord. Please remember the misery of your servant. Please do not forget me. If you give me a son, I promise you, I will give him back into your service all the days of his life. You understand what she just prayed? The one thing that she desires, the one thing she wants more than anything else, she says, Lord, if you give me that one thing, I promise you, I will immediately give that one thing back to you in surrender and sacrifice. If you give me a child, I will surrender that child under your service all the days of his life. This is a prayer that she prayed repeatedly. And God heard her prayer, opened her womb. She became pregnant, gave birth to a bouncing baby boy. They gave him the name Samuel. And as soon as Samuel was weaned, then Hannah and Elk took their boy up to the tabernacle, there to the priest named Eli. And it was Hannah who said, I prayed for this child. And God heard my prayer and he gave me what I requested of him. And in turn, I am surrendering him, sacrificing him, surrendering him unto the work of the Lord all the days of his life. You sit there and you think to yourself, Pastor, I thought you were talking about ministry today. Why are you talking about the parents with children? Well, the reason is because haven't you heard on more than one occasion, that when a believer has a certain ministry, how, how do we describe it? Oh, that's his baby. That's her baby, right? I mean, that's how we describe it, isn't it? When we talk about somebody that when you think of that ministry, this individual comes to mind and how do you verbalize it? How do you articulate it? That's his baby. That's her baby. I mean, this is synonymous. You see this ministry and it coincides with this individual. And just as Hannah had to surrender her child unto the Lord, so you and I have to surrender our ministry unto the Lord. For children are given to us on loan, are they not? On loan for us to steward and surrender unto the work of God. And ministry is given unto you so that you may steward and surrender it unto the Lord. 
I have no problem with somebody saying that's their baby. Because actually, as a pastor, I want people to be personally vested and, and interested in the ministry that they do. But in ministry, I have to understand that this ministry does not belong to me. This ministry does not belong to you, whatever the ministry may be. It belongs unto the Lord. And one of the first lessons that you and I have to learn from the life of Samuel is that ministry requires, it requires surrendering our desires unto the Lord. As much as I love you, you are not my people. And as much as I love this church, this is not my church. Because you belong to God and this is God's church. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that saves you. My blood, if it was shed for you, it wouldn't accomplish very much and it wouldn't do you much much good at all. But the blood of Jesus, that's what saves you. You belong unto him. And I have to constantly remind myself that these are God's people. This is God's church. It does not belong to me. As much as I love you, I've got to surrender you unto the Lord. As much as... I love what God has called me to do. This preaching ministry, it doesn't belong to me. It's not mine. I don't get to call the shots. And on a regular basis, I have to remind myself, this is God's. And so something that I desire, something that I, that I hold on to, something that I love, I, I've got to surrender that unto the Lord. You see this in the life of Hannah. This is one thing that she wanted more than anything else. It seemed to be the one thing that eluded her. And finally, God opened her womb and gave her a bouncing baby boy. And as she promised, she said, this belongs to you. It's not mine. This is yours. One of the first lessons in ministry of how God uses ministry to make us into the disciples that God wants us to be is that he has to teach us that ministry requires the surrendering of our desires unto the Lord. There's a second takeaway. And the second uh, takeaway is that ministry's effectiveness is built upon holiness. Ministry's effectiveness is built upon holiness. As the curtain lifts on chapter 3, our passage of 1 Samuel, we discover that uh, Eli is the priest. Samuel is serving under his leadership. It's Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, who said that at this juncture of the story, Samuel would have been about 12 years of age. And Samuel had been there for 12 years. More than a decade, he had been raised there in the temple. And, and, and there the Lord uh, was using Eli uh, to teach Samuel all the tricks of the trade, all the things that needed to be done. Samuel will stand in the gap between the judges and the kings. He will have a tremendous ministry. He comes on the heels of the judges. Some have called him the last judge for throughout the period of the judges, God would raise up a particular person, a man or a woman, usually uh, in, in military conquest. And that person would not only lift out Israel uh, out of, out of uh, enslavement, but also uh, that judge would bring them back unto the Lord. There was a constant cycle in the judges where God's people would be close to him, then they'd fall away, then they'd be captured, they'd cry out to the Lord, he would raise up a judge. And that cycle goes on and on and on and on. And Samuel comes on the heels of the judges. Eventually, the Israelites will call out and clamor for a king. 
They'll say, we want a king just like every other nation. And eventually God will acquiesce. He will give them a king. And it's Samuel who's going to anoint some of those initial kings. Guys like Saul and David, Solomon. Samuel stands in the gap. He's going to be that, that last judge and that future kingmaker. Samuel's going to have an important ministry. In the opening lines of our passage, we are told an interesting statement, though. The statement is given to us that the word of God in those days was rare. Not very many visions. And that Eli, Eli's eyes were weak. He was getting to the point where he was becoming blind. These statements tell us not only something physical, but also something spiritual. That the spiritual life of Israel was on life support. The word of God was rare. God was not raising up individuals, men to say, thus saith the Lord. The word of God was rare. The, the life of Israel was on, was on life support. They were spiritually anorexic. And their leader, Eli, the priest there at the tabernacle, that Eli was one and his eyes were weak. Not just physically was he becoming blind, but I also think that spiritually he was becoming blind. The reason was because of a lack of holiness. The reason was because of negligence. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, that Eli had two sons. Those two sons were also priests, but these two sons were wicked men. They did not regard the Lord. What did they do, you ask? Well, they robbed God of his tithes and offerings. They exploited the people of God. They had illicit affairs with the women of God there at the church. And apparently, these two sons of Eli had forgotten how to blush. They weren't bashful about boasting of their escapades. I can imagine that if Eli's sons had Instagram and Facebook, their pictures and their postings would make you cringe because they'd be so vile and embarrassing. Friends, it is bad news when we forget how to blush. I mean, some things ought to cause us to get uncomfortable. There are some topics that, that ought to cause us just to be a little bit squirmish. There are some things we ought to think to ourselves, that's not really a topic that ought to be discussed in this manner, in this place. But for the sons of Eli, there was nothing that would make them blush. Everything that they did, they would boast about and brag about as if they had another notch in their belt. They were so braggadocious. They would talk about anything and everything with anybody who would listen. And they never turned one shade of red. And all my friends... When you and I have a conscience that's so seared and we no longer blush, that's a very dangerous place to be. It's a very dangerous place for an individual, for a congregation, for a culture, for a country. It's a very dangerous place when people no longer blush over things that are sinful. That's the sons of Eli. To make matters worse, Eli knew about it. And he didn't do anything about it. He knew about the sinful escapades of his two boys. Now the Bible does tell us that on one day he had a mild confrontation with them. Now boys, you know you weren't brought up to do this. If it's true, you need to stop doing this. 
They laughed in the face of their old man. They threw caution to the wind. They were not going to listen to him. And they continued to do the things that they wanted to do. They were contemptible in the sight of God. And Eli demonstrated absolutely no restraint. He enforced no level of holiness in his family. It was years ago that James Dobson said that the single greatest responsibility of a Christian parent is to pass on the faith to his or her children. Mom and dad, the single greatest responsibility you have is to teach your children and maybe even your grandchildren how to have a fiery commitment unto Christ. It's to pass the torch of the faith onto your children. And that's not easy. It's hard because it's the nature of a fire to become extinguished. And it is our responsibility to pass on that faith from one generation to the next. Our greatest responsibility is not to teach our son how to hit a curveball or to spin a spiral or to build a tree stand or to drive a car. Our greatest responsibility is not to teach our daughter how to play piano, how to color coordinate shirts and skirts or how to uh, hurl a softball or get the most bang for the buck at a sale at the mall. No, our greatest responsibility is to pass on the faith to our children. And that's hard. Listen, my friends, it is far easier to teach your son how to hit a curveball than to teach him how to handle the curveballs of life. It it is far easier to teach your son how to build a tree stand than to teach him how to build his faith rooted in the study of God's word. It is far easier to teach your children how to succeed in this quote-unquote American culture than it is to actually teach them how to have a fiery faith in the pit of their stomach that will carry them in every stage and season of life. And yet... This is the responsibility that God had given to parents. This is the responsibility that Eli had abdicated. Uh, Maybe Eli just didn't believe the accusations that were leveled against his sons. Uh, Maybe Eli just didn't want to believe those vicious accusations. I mean, after all, what parent wants to believe that their sons, their children, could do such vile things? Maybe Maybe Eli was so busy with the daily operations of the tabernacle that he had just neglected his responsibility at home. Regardless, he was a distant dad. And being a distant dad can be quite dangerous. I realize that uh, at some point, our children have to have personal responsibility, don't they? I mean, at some point... They've got to take responsibility for their actions. But many times in the church culture, we get to the point where we throw up our hands far too early. And we say to ourselves, I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I don't know. I can't do anything else with them. They're on their own now. And sometimes we get there far too early. Once again, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, but wait a minute, pastor. You said that this was a message on ministry. Yet, once again, you go back to the family. Once again, you're going back to Eli and his lack of holiness in his life and in the lives of his sons. Why are you talking so much about family? Let me answer that. Because your ministry starts at home. Whatever God has called you to, whatever ministry he's given to you, whatever baby you got, 
that everybody in the, in the faith family uh, c- connects you with. Regardless, your ministry starts at home. And as your family goes, so goes the faith family. And as the faith family goes, so goes your family. I have a responsibility to you. I do, I understand that. I have a great responsibility to you. But outside my responsibility to my Savior and to my spouse, the two people I am next most responsible to are the two that call me dad. And that's not true just for me. It's also true for you. Our ministry, the effectiveness of our ministry, it starts at home. And if we don't instill holiness into our lives, and if we don't do our very best to instill a fiery commitment to Christ in holiness into the lives of our children, then woe to us. This is the indictment that God has against Eli. This is the indictment that he levels against Eli. You knew, and yet you demonstrated absolutely zero restraint for your children. I told you, payday will come someday, the Lord says. It was several years ago when I heard a sermon by, I think his name was Ben Mandrell, a pastor somewhere in Tennessee at the time. He said, uh, here are some things that I've learned as a young parent. Now, even, even the title captured my attention because if there's anybody who should not talk about parenting, it's a young parent, right? I mean, let the parent be old. Let them have a lot of experiences, you know, but not a young parent. Don't, don't have a young parent stand up and say, no, this is how you're supposed to parent. But yet the pastor, he stood up and he said, these are the things I've learned. And here was one of the lessons that really captured my attention. The lesson he learned from his young parenthood was that you can't stack Legos on fuzzy carpet. You ever tried to do that? I mean, you're there with your child and you're building those Legos. And if you have that old-fashioned fuzzy carpet, that Lego stack's not going to get very tall, is it? Because you can't build Legos. You can't stack Legos on fuzzy carpet. You say, what in the world does that have to do with ministry? I'll tell you what it has to do with ministry. Because just like you can't build Legos, you can't build disciples on a foundation that's not strong and sturdy. And from the life of Samuel, that foundation, yes, you could say it's the Lord Jesus Christ. I get that and I would not disagree. But in this story, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, in the backstory of the life of Eli, I think that that foundation is the foundation of holiness. That if you don't have a foundation of holiness in Christ, then you are just as, just as, 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 as futile as trying to build Legos on fuzzy carpet. Eventually, it will come toppling over. Because in ministry, the only thing you and I have that's worth anything is a holy character. If you don't have a holy character, your stack of Legos will eventually come tumbling down. I've seen it time and time again. You've seen it time and time again. What is the Lord telling us through this uh, Old Testament character of Samuel? He's saying, listen, ministry effectiveness in my life, in your life, in everybody's life, ministry effectiveness is only built through holiness. Eli refused to do that. And his ministry was about to come tumbling down. There's a third takeaway in the life of Samuel, and, and, and it's simply this, that ministry 
is living out being in his presence and knowing him personally. Ministry is living out being in his presence and knowing him personally. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. All hope is not gone. We are told that Eli laid down in his usual spot. But Samuel rested beside the ark of God. Oh, there's a glimmer of hope. Because the young man of God is living and working in the tabernacle of God. And he is resting near the ark of God where God dwells. God called him by name Samuel. Samuel. Samuel heard it but did not recognize the voice he assumed that it was his mentor Eli he ran in and said sir what do you need you called me by name I didn't call you go back and lay down he goes back same thing happens a second time and a third time Samuel doesn't recognize the voice we are told an interesting statement in verse 7 that Samuel did not yet know the Lord The vision of God had not yet been revealed to him. That's astounding to me. For the better part of 12 years, young Samuel was learning how to be a minister, but he didn't know the Messiah. He was learning how to do ministry, but it was with no power. He was learning how to do ministry, but he did not yet know the Lord. That's why he did not recognize his voice. You cannot recognize the voice of someone you do not know. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I call my sheep by name. They recognize my voice and they follow me. We recognize the lead of Jesus because we know him personally. And because we know him personally, we can recognize his voice so that when he calls, we respond, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. The implication of listening is obeying all throughout the Bible. If someone listens to God, they will inevitably obey God. And Samuel was serving for more than a decade without yet knowing the Lord. I'm going to go out on a limb here. But this is why I believe that a saved preacher is always more effective than an unsaved preacher. (laughs) A saved deacon is more better than an unsaved deacon. A saved church member is far more committed than an unsaved church member. And if you think we don't have any unsaved church members, then you better check again, not just this membership role, but every membership role on any church throughout America today. It would be a great revival if the church members just actually got saved. I think it makes a saved small group leader far more effective than an unsaved small group leader. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. He was trying to do ministry without knowing the Messiah. If you try to do that, there is no power in that. There is no effectiveness in there. There's no long-lasting influence in that. You've got to know the Lord. So in order to do ministry for Christ, you must receive ministry from Christ. In order to do something for him, you must know him. Before you can stand and say, thus saith the Lord, you got to know the Lord who saith thus. You've got to know God in order to do ministry for God. Ministry is is living out, being in his presence, and knowing him personally. The greatest effectiveness of your ministry is when it flows out 
of who you are. This is your identity. My identity is not what I do. My identity is in him who I know. That's my identity. And it's out of that identity of who I know that it affects what I do. Identity always precedes activity. And oftentimes in ministry, we get that backwards thinking somehow, some way, our activity gives us our identity. But it's our identity in Christ that influences what we do. Who we are always precedes what we do. So ministry is living out being in his presence, knowing him personally. Finally, Eli caught on. It only took three tries. Finally, he caught on. He said, this is the Lord calling you, Samuel. Go back and lie down. When he calls you again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Young Samuel went back, took his spot right next to the ark of God. And the vision of God appeared. God showed up. Samuel, Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And oh, God leveled a word of judgment against the house of Eli. The next morning, Samuel woke up and he ducked and dodged. He tried to avoid his mentor, Eli. He opened the doors of the tabernacle. He did all of his daily chores. Eventually, Eli caught up with him and he said, what did he say last night? Don't hide it from me. You tell me what he said. And Samuel had to deliver the message that God had given him last night. And he had to give a word of judgment and indictment against his mentor, Eli. I suspect that was probably the toughest sermon that Samuel ever had to preach. And it was his first one. (laughs) I've heard that the first sermon is the lousiest sermon. But in this case, the first sermon was the hardest sermon that he ever had to preach. And he delivered it. And it was received well. You know what Eli said? Eli said, the Lord, he is right. He does what is good in his eyes. There's irony in that. The eyes of Eli were blind. The eyes of the Lord are strong. Eli's eyes were failing him. They were weak, but God's eyes are perfect and true and accurate. And so Eli gets to the point where he says, let God do what God can do because God is always right. His eyes are strong. We are told that uh, not one word from the lips of Samuel fell and hit the ground. What does that mean? It means that it accomplished what God set forth for it to accomplish. That everybody knew from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south, that God was speaking in Shiloh. That God was showing up in Shiloh. When I came across those words and I came across that statement this past week, I thought to myself, oh God, continue to show up at Pelham. Continue to show up and show off. Let people know from northern Birmingham down to Calera. Let people know that you're doing something great at First Baptist Pelham. That you are showing up. That you are speaking. That you are good. That you are right. That you are true. Don't stop what you're doing, oh God. The word of God continued to be proclaimed at Shiloh. As I think about the ministry that we have here at First Baptist Pelham, I don't know if you realize this, but but we do a lot. 
We have ministry from the womb to the tomb and everything in between. We've got ministry from the cradle to the grave. If you stop and think about it, we've got, we've got things for every stage and season of life. In order to do that, we need for you to help, right? We need for you to do your God-given ministry. And whether, whether you're doing your ministry uh, with children's ministry or student ministry, upward ministry, senior adult ministry, orphan care ministry, visit, visitation ministry, worship ministry, Regardless of where you are in the ministry, maybe you're even a parachurch ministry, something alongside the church. Regardless, the three takeaways from the life of Samuel, the three lessons that, that I have to learn and you have to learn is the lesson of surrender, that ministry requires us to surrender our desires unto the Lord. It's a, it's a lesson about holiness. The, the ministry Effectiveness is built on holiness. If we don't have a holy character, we got nothing. And ministry has something to do with identity. Our identity is not in what we do. Our identity is in who we know, and it's Jesus Christ. For ministry is living out being in his presence and knowing him personally. I think that Samuel learned all three of those lessons. The way I know it is because... In verse 19 of our passage, it says that he continued to grow. I take that to mean he continued to grow physically, but not just physically, but also spiritually. That's not the first time that Samuel is described as being one who grows. In chapter 2, it is said of Samuel that he was growing in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and man. When I come across that statement in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, I'm reminded there's another child of the Bible, where it's said of him that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This other child is told to us in Luke chapter 2. This other child, ironically, at the age of 12, was also found in the tabernacle temple, and he said he was busy about his father's business. This other child is, is not a glimmer of hope, he is the eternal hope. This other child is, is not just the last judge. He is the greatest judge. This other child is not a king maker. He's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. This other child is not just a prophet who says, thus saith the Lord. He is the Lord of all the prophets. This other child is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This other child is the one who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl, was raised a perfect life, and then died on the cross for your sins and mine, was placed in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead. This other child was one who grew, and he is the creator who died for creation. This other child is none other than Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the greatest servant. Jesus is the greatest minister. Jesus is the greatest preacher. Jesus is our example in faith, speech, love, and ministry. Samuel is just simply one who points us to Jesus. That's all he does. He's a precursor to Jesus. He just points people into Jesus. My friend, as a minister of the gospel, what do you do? Your purpose in ministry is just to point people to Jesus. Don't look at me. If all you do is look at me, you'll find a sinner. But you look in me and through me, behind me and around me, and you'll find my Savior who saved me. 
Don't just look at me. Look at my Jesus. That's what ministry ought to do in my life and in your life. So that you and I can say with Fanny Crosby, I am thine, O Lord. And I heard thy voice. And it told of thy love to me. Yet I long to rise in the arms of faith and be closer drawn to thee. So draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. In ministry, I am only effective when I clutch and cling to the precious bleeding side of Christ. In ministry, you are only effective when you clutch and cling to the precious bleeding side of Christ. Ministry is not just what you do. Ministry is a tool that God uses to make and fashion you into the disciple that he wants you to be. God wants you to be involved in ministry. God wants you to do ministry. But don't forget the takeaways that God says, that in ministry, ministry requires that you surrender your desires unto the Lord. That ministry effectiveness is built on holiness. That ministry is living out just being in his presence and knowing him personally. So this morning, cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. Cling to his precious bleeding side. Cling unto Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Lord, I look out and I see a lot of ministers, believers in Christ who've been called to do the work of the ministry, the work of the gospel. And Father, on this day, help us to heed well the lessons from the life of Samuel. Father, if there's someone here who does not know you as Savior, Lord, I pray that today is the day of their salvation. And Father, I pray that you'll be honored and glorified in everything we say and do in this moment of invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.